Welcome to the Autism Thinks podcast. It's hosted by the New Jersey Autism Center of Excellence, where we bring together the neuroscience, technology, and innovation to a soundscape that'll change your perspectives on all things autism and the world around us. Just one episode at a time. Hey, it's Hannah here, and I hope you've been taking care of yourself. Today, we're delving into the field of social cognition with the help of a very special guest, Dr. Helen Genova. My name is Helen Genova. And I am the assistant director of the Center for Neuropsychology and Neuroscience Research at the Kessler Foundation. And I'm also the director of the Social Cognition and Neuroscience Laboratory. And so I study social cognition in adults with multiple sclerosis, traumatic brain injury. And recently I've broadened that into studying young adults with autism. She talks about what she investigates at the Kessler Foundation, where she began by studying treatments for improving social cognition in adults with multiple sclerosis and traumatic brain injury. These conditions disrupt the communication between the brain and the rest of the body, and it is further research that helped her discover a more common pattern. At Kessler Foundation, I began to study adults with traumatic brain injury and multiple sclerosis, and one of the things that I started to realize was they had social cognition problems. So they had problems with interacting with other people. You know, you might meet somebody with a traumatic brain injury who before their injury, they were fine. They had a lot of friends. They, they had a good relationship with their, their spouse. And then after the injury, they start to have some interpersonal issues. So they start to have social communication problems. They're having difficulty speaking with other people. They might be getting into more fights with close family and friends. And these are all problems that are sort of unexpected. You know, you don't expect that the person who has the brain injury is suddenly going to be acting like this following their injury. And that really started to get me interested in not just cognitive deficits, which is something I had always studied, but these social cognition deficits. So understanding how people understand the emotions, the feelings, and the beliefs of other people, or misunderstand the emotions and beliefs of others. This episode, we're focusing on figuring out how we navigate through a conversation and how we juggle all the different variables of context, social cues, turn-taking, and topic-picking. So many things that can be difficult to master and come with practice, even though many of us may just take them for granted or not think too deeply about them. In autism, Dr. Genova talks about how there are not necessarily deficits, but rather challenges with typical social skills and communication. So while her research journey led to the study of autism and social cognition, she recently received a grant from the New Jersey Governor's Council for Medical Research and Treatment of Autism under the Department of Health. Her study was called 
the utilization of a virtual reality job training tool in adolescents with autism spectrum disorder. So this brings us to one of the more interesting social interactions of them all, the job interview. If you've ever been through one, do you remember how nerve-wracking job interviews can be? All right. Name? Dwight Schrute. Thank you, Mr. Schnute. We will let you know. You have to interview me. I just did. The answer to that one question told me everything I need to know. So our study is really geared towards young adults with autism who are transitioning into real adulthood. So one of the reasons we started this was because young children or young teenagers with autism often have difficulty finding employment following high school. In fact, they are really at a very high risk compared to a lot of other types of disability groups. And we don't really know why. There's a few reasons that could explain it. But one of the things that we wanted to look at is how can we help them with the job interview process? I demand more questions. All right, guys, good day. A lot of candidates, let's discuss. Okay, if you're not gonna interview me, then I'll do it. Yes. What will be your first priority? I will have seven first priorities. Safety, profits, fostering a community of self-reliance and entrepreneurship, listening, respect for human life bolstering our public image, and getting everyone home on time. So our thought was that teenagers with autism have a ton to offer the world. So they have tons of skills, tons of talent, wonderful personalities, and they're really, really hard workers. And what we want to do is help them just make it over that first obstacle of the job interview, where some of them may experience some difficulty. So they may have difficulty because they're anxious about, you know, speaking to another person and having to tell the other person about themselves. They may just have difficulty in communicating with the other person. So we really felt that that was a step that we wanted to help them with. That's right. It's getting through this initial hurdle that can be difficult. She walks us through how innovative virtual reality techniques could help better support them through the job interview process. The virtual reality program was established at the University of Michigan. It's a program where they basically practice job interviews with a virtual human avatar. And they have the opportunity to practice answering interview questions again and again and again. The virtual human avatar changes in terms of her personality. So sometimes she can be really sweet and very forgiving of mistakes. Sometimes she can be a bit more businesslike and harsh. So it really gives them a whole range of interview experiences. So by the time they're done, we're hoping that they will have a lot of experience in almost any kind of question that they could get and almost any type of interviewer they could get, they're, they're going to have experiences with that. So that is the program. And we look at job interview skills before and after they go through this six-week program. What's interesting about this is how virtual reality could simulate how random or fluctuating the real world can be. This is important while young adults transition from the more structured environment of the school to the more spontaneous, less rigid scenarios seen outside of it. 
they may have really wonderful parents who are trying to help prepare them to enter into the employment world or really wonderful teachers or therapists. And one really popular way of preparing for a job interview is role play. So you say to your friend, hey, ask me some questions and we're just going to practice that I'm on the job interview. So it's a really wonderful way to practice. However, somebody like a parent or a therapist or a teacher may go easy on the kid. You know what I mean? They may just ask them questions that they know the child is good at answering. If the teenager with autism, for example, gives an answer that may not be socially appropriate, they may just let it go and not correct them or give them any sort of feedback. So the really cool thing about this virtual reality program is, number one, it incorporates that role-playing activity, but it's with a virtual human who's not going to take it easy on them. And I think that is really key because it simulates a real-world job interview, which can't be mimicked with a role play with your mom, for example. So you might be wondering, what results did Dr. Genova and her team see through this study? Was it really able to help improve her participants' interviewing skills? In our pilot study, we tested this out on a very small sample of students, and we had seven high schoolers who did the treatment, and then seven who did not. So we had a control group and then an experimental group. And we found huge progress in the kids who had undergone the treatment. Whereas the control kids just sort of stayed the same between time point one and time point two, so pre the intervention to post the intervention, their skills just stayed the same. We saw in the kids who had undergone the treatment a very big increase in their job interview skills. And that included sounding hireable. So like sounding like somebody that you'd want to hire, sounding like a team player, sounding dependable, establishing good rapport with the interviewer. So across a number of skills, we saw a really nice improvement. And that pilot data gave us the confidence to proceed into this study, which is larger, bigger sample size, different ages. So I think that that was really exciting to see. There are a few instances that were like aha moments as she progressed through the project. In job interviews, there's often a relatively common question you'd hear. Tell me about yourself. These four words sound quite simple, but deciphering what exactly it entails, how much or how little you need to tell someone about yourself can be challenging. One of the most surprising things was to listen to some of the job interviews before the kids went through the treatment and just to see what it was like before they had treatment and then after treatment. So, you know, a simple question like, tell me about yourself, you know, that's something that is very common. I mean, when I do a job interview with someone, that's the first thing I ask them is, okay, so tell me a little bit about yourself. It turned out that a lot of times kids who did not have autism just sort of knew what the answer to that question should be. So for example, they would say, well, I'm a high school senior. I'm, I'm you know, the captain of the football team. I would love a job in sales because I think I'd be really great at it. So they just automatically knew that when an interviewer asks them, tell me about yourself, they just knew the the type of answer that was required there. 
And what I found really surprising and interesting was that autistic teenagers didn't always get it. So some of them were, were great. Some of them were totally fine. But I did see that some would start talking about something that they found very interesting, but it wasn't really what the interviewer was asking. So they might say, for example, the types of video games they love to play or the name of their pet and why they love their pet so much. So it was really striking to me that they just simply didn't understand what the interviewer was expecting to hear and knowing that in real life, if they were to do that, they might actually have a difficult time getting past the job interview. But when you inform them, listen, this is what a job interviewer wants to know when they ask this question, they get it and they go, oh, okay. And then they, and then they're able to, to give a better answer. So I thought that that was a really interesting aha moment was just to be able to give them the tools that they need to get the right information across to the interviewer. What adds to the complexity of this question is also context. The setting you're in or who you're with can often determine your answer. And I think it really depends on the context that you're in. You know, if you say to somebody, so tell me about yourself. If you were, for example, in a high school cafeteria and you sat down next to somebody and you asked them that question in a less, you know, formal way. But if you said, hey, what are you into? You know, it's, it's appropriate to start talking about video games and it's expected and, and that's the right way to answer that question. But then if you were to go to, on a job interview, when somebody says, so tell me about yourself, they're looking for a whole other set of information. And so I think you know, helping people understand that sometimes just that change in context of where you are is necessarily going to change the information the other person is expecting to hear. And I think just explaining that to them is really going to help them. We know that these kids have everything it takes to be successful, and we just want to help them get their feet in the door and make a good first impression so that whoever's interviewing them will hire them. And and then we hope that that'll just help them get started. You'll be hearing from us shortly, Mr. Schrute. And I think you're gonna like the call you're going to receive. Oh, come on. I'm just happy that I got this meeting. Earlier, we mentioned that Dr. Genova is a neuroscientist studying social cognition. But why is social cognition important? How do the social interactions we have, like job interviews, affect the inner worlds of our minds? Your social network is so important. When you're having a bad day, you want to call your mom and tell her about it. When you're, you know, when you're having a wonderful news, you want to call your friends and let them know what happened. And so if you have either a disability or a challenge in social cognition, and that really has made me want to help people do better in that domain. There's a lot of research to show that people who have really strong social networks do better in other aspects of life. So they have better quality of life, better health. So I think that anything we can do to help them get better at interacting with others, 
I think that's that's really worthwhile pursuit when you're doing your research. There's even evidence that more frequent and fulfilling social interactions can actually help you live longer. I think there's a huge correlation between social ability and cognition later in life. My grandmother, for example, is very social and She's always, you know, oh, I'm going to go see these people tonight. Or for a while she was going on cruises with people or she'd have game night. And it always involved her and her friends or her and her family. And she's still very sharp. And I really think that has a lot to do with it. Along these lines of socializing with others, one of the more striking things on your mind right now might be how the current pandemic and its precautions to prevent further spread can affect our social identities. In terms of cognitive fatigue, absolutely. The term Zoom fatigue is one that I think anybody could relate to. Having to constantly sit there and watch other people talking through a computer screen, but not being able to be in their real physical presence. I know for myself, I get tired during the day when I have to do it. So that is certainly a big problem, not just in autistic children, but I think in anybody who has any kind of a fatiguing, you know, sort of disorder, or even in just the general population. My only, you know, tips for that would be to take breaks, to reduce screen time in other areas of your life. So for example, if you have a teenager who sort of decompresses with screen time, not to take it away, because if that's the way they decompress, that's the way they decompress and and you shouldn't take it away from them, but perhaps to give them other things to do. So for example, with my own children, I'll often say, come on, let's go for a walk. You know, like when there's a recess in school, you know, get up, go outside, get fresh air, just give your eyes something else to look at other than a computer screen. So that's what I would suggest for cognitive fatigue is just give yourself a break, play a board game, be with your friends outside, you know, while being socially distant, of course. Loneliness can be another challenge while being socially distant with one another. In terms of loneliness, that's a huge issue, I think, during this pandemic for almost everybody. In some ways, the interesting thing may be that kids with autism or autistic children may actually be feeling, if they're remote learning, a little bit of relief. Because for some of them, it may be difficult to have to go into school and engage with other children. You know, especially if they're integrated into a general education classroom, there's a little bit of pressure for them to always be with others and to trying to fit in and trying to act socially appropriately and not having to do that may be a little bit of a relief. So that's one possibility. But for those children who are feeling loneliness and isolation, I mean, I would just encourage parents to think of ways to let their children be with others, whether it's virtually or outside wearing a mask because I think that connecting to people with similar interests, so for example, is there a class or a, a club that your children can join? Like my son just joined a cooking club and you know he's learning new recipes every week. Both of my sons right now, they're in an acting class. So they're logged in right now and they're, and they're doing little acting exercises. 
So I would look for ways to have children engage however they can during this time, especially if they're learning remotely. I think the teachers come in and they teach the kids, but they're not necessarily worried about their social engagement. She talks about other challenges, like the uncertainty of future events that can disrupt our lifestyles, and how to better support children through this. One of the biggest challenges, at least that I've seen in my research and from talking to parents, is this disruption to the children's lives. So kids who have autism, they prefer things to be the same every day. So they expect that the bus is going to come at this time and then they're going to get on the bus and they're going to go to school and their teacher is going to be in this classroom and, and they sort of thrive and enjoy and find comfort in that consistency. And this pandemic has completely upended all of that consistency. So you now have, for example, therapists delivering therapy via Zoom. You know, and it may be, I don't want to see them via Zoom. I want to be in their office because that's where we do therapy. This isn't what, what I do, you know. You have such a monumental disruption to the life of a child with autism. And I think that has probably been one of the worst parts of this is that disruption, not just to therapy and services, but then also just to their lives, which is such a problem for them in terms of their comfort level. So you'll see a lot of increased agitation. Some children may even become more aggressive just simply because they're having a harder time coping. So that is one of the things that I think if parents can insert as much consistency into the child's schedule as possible, that's really what I would recommend. So to have, for example, a schedule up on the refrigerator and say, you know, at 9 a.m., you log into Zoom. At 10 a.m., we're taking a walk. At 11 a.m., you're logging back into Zoom. And at 12 o'clock, we're going to play basketball and follow through every single day. Make sure that child always knows what's coming next, what's coming next, because that predictability is going to give them a certain amount of comfort. So we talked about Dr. Genova's work and research, and by now, you might be wondering what her research journey's been like. What got her intrigued by social cognition and neuroscience in the first place? My research journey really began in college. I had always really been drawn to psychology. I just loved the study of the brain and what happens when things go differently in, during development. So for example, abnormal psychology, what sorts of things happen when someone is developing that make them act the way that they act in adulthood. So I'd always just been fascinated by the brain. And the other thing was I had always done well in science class. So I was taking a lot of biology classes, chemistry classes, and I loved the structure of science but my real passion was psychology. So when I learned that neuroscience is sort of the marriage between biology and psychology, and you could specifically study on the brain, that was when I really felt drawn to the field of neuroscience. 
She talks about the importance of representation of women in STEM fields and how her experiences in school helped shape her outlook on the need for change today. Science and math are often considered male-dominated fields, and contributions that women have made were often ignored or forgotten for decades. So at present, it's important we work towards increasing access and motivation in pursuing these fields. I went to a school for all girls in high school, and what I thought was so wonderful there was that it's not the sort of situation where girls hide behind the, the boys in the science class. You know, there's been studies showing that teachers will call on boys more in a science or math class than they will on girls. And in an all-girls school, we didn't have that. You know, you just raised your hand and you got called on and you didn't have to compete with the boys. And so I think that really shaped the way that I feel about how we tend to treat young women and the expectations we have of them, you know, having the same expectations for them that we do for, for young men. And, um, you know, and I have two sons and a daughter, so I want them all to do well. I just, uh, I, I hope that young women don't feel that they need to get pushed into something simply because that's what girls do. You know, I want them to feel comfortable in science and math because that's also what girls do. In thinking about what women empowerment looks like, I'd like to leave you with some words of wisdom from Dr. Helen Genova. Thanks so much for listening to the Autism Thinks podcast. And hopefully, this helps on the journey through learning a little bit more about yourself and the people around you. I think I would like to gear my advice towards or to focus my advice towards young women because I think that the field is often dominated by men. You know, the science and the math fields and the engineering fields, there's way more men than there are women. And I think all of that sort of starts in childhood. You know, I think that we often give girls certain types of toys that, you know, we think that girls should play with. And we, without even realizing it, we sort of push them into fields that we feel women should, should be pushed into. And, um, you know, so for me, I, I would really like to say to young women to not be afraid to speak up in math class, to take the hard science class, to ask the question of the teacher, you know, when you're not sure. In college, go visit your teacher during office hours. Ask them, you know, if they would mind giving you a research project that you could do with them. You know, always try to, number one, don't be intimidated by science. Don't get the sense that you don't belong because you do. The science field needs women. And just to always look for ways to sort of set yourself apart. Like I said, go to your favorite professor and say, hey, is there any way I could help you do research in your lab? You know, I think professors probably love that. You know, they're, they're very excited to have extra help. <laughs> and that's really going to give you experience and it's going to set you apart from the rest of your classmates. And, um, and I, I think those are the really valuable moments in college that are going to help shape you and, and guide you towards your career.